Let us pray. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be always acceptable in thy sight, O Lord, our strength and our Redeemer. Amen. Please be seated. As I mentioned, today is the feast of St. Philip and St. James, and it begs two questions. Uh, Which St. Philip and which St. James? And second, why does the Book of Common Prayer have us celebrate these two together? Now, there are two main Philips in the scriptures. There's Philip the Apostle and there's Philip the Evangelist. Philip the Apostle was one of the twelve disciples. Philip the Evangelist was one of the first deacons who was ordained with St. Stephen the Proto-Martyr. Today, we are commemorating St. Philip the Apostle who went to Greece and to Syria and a place called Phrygia, potentially going so far east as Russia. He was crucified and stoned at Hierapolis in Phrygia because he successfully prayed for the death of a great serpent that was worshipped by the people of the city, an action which they did not appreciate. As far as James, there are also two main options for which James we're celebrating today. There's James the Apostle, also called James the Great, And then there's James, the stepbrother of Christ, who's also called James the Just, or somewhat pejoratively, James the Less. Today, we're celebrating James, the stepbrother of Christ, James the Less, who, after his conversion, after our Lord's ascension, served as the bishop of Jerusalem. And we're pretty sure he was martyred there in Jerusalem by the Pharisees for preaching the gospel. So why does the Book of Common Prayer group these two saints together? Well, it's possible that the tradition of grouping various figures on feast days uh, began as a way of emulating when Jesus sent out his disciples two by two on their mission. However, the main reason that these two figures are celebrated together has to do with the fact that in the 6th century, a minor basilica was built in Rome that housed the bones of both St. Philip the Apostle and St. James the Just, And ever since, the church calendar has commemorated them together. And that church was called St. Philip and St. James, though now it's called the, uh, I think it's called the Church of the Twelve Holy Apostles. So saints are Christians who have gone before us and afford us examples of what a faithful life of discipleship looks like. They enfleshed the gospel in various contexts, and in turn, our Christian imaginations are stoked by looking at their examples. They remind us of what we are capable of through the empowerment of the Holy Spirit, and they exhort us to live lives of martyrdom. And that lifestyle of martyrdom really is at the heart of our epistle reading this morning, as James talks about suffering temptations. Suffering, when done well, increases our patience and increases our maturity, becoming a means whereby we receive wisdom from the Holy Spirit. Now, as I mentioned, James was the stepbrother of our Lord. He was most likely not our Lord's half-brother because it doesn't seem biblically like Mary had other children because on the cross, as we read during Passion Week, Jesus gives Mary to John the Apostle and vice versa, saying, Woman, behold thy son, and to John, behold thy mother. This was to ensure that Mary was taken care of in our Lord's absence. But in that world, if she had biological children other than Jesus, it would have fallen to them to take care of her. That she didn't have biological children is why one of her titles is Ever Virgin. It's most likely then that James was Jesus' stepbrother, which maybe explains some of the tension between them, James's unwillingness to believe that our Lord was really who he said he was, a contentious step-sibling relationship. 
So that would have meant that James was the stepson from Joseph's previous marriage. Joseph seems to have been older um, throughout the events of the gospel. The last time we hear from him is when uh, Joseph and Mary lose Jesus in the temple. So it's possible that Joseph died while Jesus was still a teenager. And so James was not a believer during Jesus' life. It seems like he converted very early after the events of Easter and the ascension of our Lord. But very quickly, he became a prominent figure in the church, given his close proximity to our Lord, becoming a bishop in Jerusalem, which would have been the central operating base of the church. So he was their version of Bishop Chad, or maybe Bishop Chad is our version of St. James. We see his authoritative role in Acts chapter 18 when the church had their first ecumenical council where the decision had to be made what it looked like to include Gentile believers in the church. So in our reading this morning, James addresses his epistle to the 12 tribes that were scattered abroad. And there's been much debate, much ink spilled about whether this means the 12 ethnic tribes of Israel or whether he's speaking of the church as a new Israel, as a spiritual Israel. And the answer is probably both, to be honest. At this point, the church would have been predominantly Jewish, but his epistle is still a thoroughly Christian piece of literature, which means it's ultimately applicable to us today. And so he begins his letter with an exhortation, and it's something that we should really pay attention to. Count it all joy when ye fall into diverse temptations. Quite a way to begin. Now, the Greek word that's translated as temptations there can also mean trials, which in modern English has a wider semantic range than what we think of when we hear temptations. A trial is a difficulty. A temptation is a kind of difficulty that's caused by concupiscence, our fleshly desires, which come from our tendency to sin. Now, most of the church fathers, when they read James chapter 1, Read this with the more narrow meaning in mind. Consider it joy when you are tempted. It's hard to say it's a firm either or, because in difficult situations, whether they be our struggle with sin or because of struggles due to external situations, we should count our struggles as joy. Cyril of Alexandria likened temptation to a terrible storm that assaults a traveler. If one can survive such a gale, one has become a master swimmer. If, however, one cannot, it demonstrates a lack of strength. So trials and temptations reveal who we are and become an opportunity for us to grow. To this end, James compares two different kinds of people, the foolish and the wise. This dichotomy between foolish and wise people isn't unique to James. It's all over the Old Testament. But James Christianizes that dichotomy for us to illustrate how different kinds of people respond when they're tempted. He begins with the foolish man. Note how the psalmist describes the foolish in Psalm chapter 1. They are like chaff, which the wind driveth away. Therefore the ungodly shall not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. James describes him similarly. The foolish man is wavering and unstable. He's like a wave in the sea that's just blown and tossed by the wind. He has no real agency in himself, but allows himself to be determined purely by his circumstances, purely what's put in front of him. This is the kind of man who cannot stand up and say, no, I'm not going to do that because it's wrong. He'll do whatever his circumstances dictate from him. 
And the result is a wavering man who will not receive anything from the Lord because of his lack of foundation, which creates in himself a double mind. This is the kind of person our Lord speaks of at the end of his sermon on the mount, who builds his house on the sand. And when the floods came and the winds blew and beat upon his house, it fell and great was the fall of it. On the other hand, St. James gives us a picture of what the blessed man looks like. A blessed man is he who endures temptation. For when he's tried, he shall receive the crown of life, which the Lord hath promised to them that love him. Compare that also with Psalm 1. Blessed is the man that walketh not in the counsel of the ungodly, nor standeth in the way of sinners, nor sitteth in the seat of the scornful. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and in his law doth he meditate day and night. And he shall be like a tree planted by the rivers of water, that bringeth forth his fruit in his season. His leaf shall not wither, and whatsoever he doeth, he shall prosper." That term blessed is also used by Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount in the section that we call the Beatitudes. To live a blessed life is to live as God has intended, to flourish. It's building one's house not on the shifting sand of the world and its values, but on the firm rock of God. So how is one blessed according to James? The answer is by enduring temptation, or as we say during the baptismal rite, to fight manfully under the banner of Christ against sin, the world, and the devil. And as a reward, the blessed man receives from God a crown of life, reminding us that we are rewarded for what we do. And it also means that some works are better than others, which means some are rewarded more or greater than others, and others will be rewarded lesser. We see a similar picture in Revelation chapter 2, verse 10. Fear none of those things which thou shalt suffer. Behold, the devil shall cast some of you into prison, that ye may be tried, and ye shall have tribulation ten days. Be thou faithful unto death, and I will give thee a crown of life. So at the heart of our obedience to God, exhibited in the behavior that resists temptation, we find the love of God. He shall receive the crown of life, which the Lord hath promised to them that love him. Temptation, suffering, and testing are major themes in the power-packed epistle of St. James. How do we make it through temptation? By not giving in to our impulses, but by enduring patiently. While our tests and temptations do not come from God, James is very clear about that, they are used by God to bring us closer to him. So when we're tempted, we have two choices, and the two choices correspond to what Deacon David said in his first sermon with us a couple months ago, which is that there is no neutral. You're either choosing one of the two options. You can either give in to temptation or you can cling to the cross. Both of those choices have consequences. Giving in may bring temporary pleasure, but James reminds us that that pleasure will inevitably fade, just like the flower in the scorching sun. But if we endure temptation, then it reveals our reliance on God and strengthens us through our dependence on him. Ultimately, our capacity to endure and master ourselves doesn't come from within. It doesn't come from drumming up enough fortitude in ourselves, but rather from the grace infused in us by the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit bestows wisdom on us when we ask. James gives us those comforting words. If any of you lack wisdom, let him ask of God 
that giveth to all men liberally and upbraideth not. For James, wisdom is the fruitful soil out of which fruit, which he calls virtues, grow that allow us in turn to resist sin. So where do we find this wisdom? How do we acquire wisdom? Well, we find it first and foremost in the sacraments, particularly in the Holy Eucharist and the sacrament of confession, which Deacon David discussed at length last week. We also find wisdom in God's word when we encounter him in the scriptures. And we find it in prayer. If we ask, he's faithful to give us what we need. And so today, as we reflect on Saints Philip and James, let us seek to follow their examples. Because both of them were willing to be martyrs for the faith. And as they were led to their martyrdom, you know that they were tempted to give in, to capitulate, to apostatize, to renounce the gospel, to stop preaching the gospel. But they didn't. And why? Why not? Because they were wise men. Maybe not in the eyes of the world, but in the eyes of God. Because they had the Holy Spirit working in them. They were emboldened to follow the gospel with all their lives, even to the point of death. And this is what we should long for. It may not lead us to a glorious martyrdom like what they experienced, but it can lead us to a lifestyle of martyrdom. And here we offer and present unto thee, O Lord, ourselves, our souls, and bodies to be a reasonable, holy, and living sacrifice unto thee. And we can pray that week after week after week because we know what St. Paul tells us in Galatians chapter 2, verse 20. I am crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live. Yet not I, but Christ liveth in me. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost. Amen.